I'm Anthony Bachman from All Things Good and Nerdy, a geeky podcast part of the Gunna Geek Network, just like the show you're checking out now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other fantastic geeky shows at GunnaGeekNetwork.com. Talk hard and enjoy the mindgasm. The intellectual podcast starts now. Good morning, everybody. It's the Intellectual Podcast, extra early morning edition because we're talking to people all the way on the other side of the country on the East Coast. Uh, we're a little bit late. I'm going to jump straight in and bring them all on, uh, including my co-host, Whitney Wegman. Good morning, everybody. Hi there, David. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. We had a little bit of tech issues this morning, but that's kind of uh, COVID normal, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Uh, Whitney, Pretty do you want to go ahead and introduce our guests? Absolutely. So this morning we are talking with casting director, director, and educator Erica Arval, and actor and educator Richard Warner. Thanks for being with us, guys. It's a pleasure. Great it's, to be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. It's exciting to be here. And thank you for getting up so early for us. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, I was just excited to see you guys again. Um, so uh, I'm sure our audience doesn't know this, but Richard was one of my professors at University of Virginia, and I also got to meet Erica while I was at University of Virginia. She was the local casting director. I auditioned for her a handful of times. And, uh, and recently, and the reason why we're doing this interview, I took an online class with you guys. So in the process- Who did you take, Whitney? I took the pure prep. Oh, fabulous. Yeah. And uh, I really enjoyed it, and I just thought, you know, it would be lovely to have you guys on because you guys are teaching in Atlanta, and I know that a lot of people on the East Coast are aware of your classes, but I don't know that a lot of people on the West Coast are. And frankly, right now, why not? I mean, you can do it online, that you can be anywhere in the world and enjoy your teaching. Um, plus, like when you guys first started this, it's whenever it's in Virginia, so uh, it was really cool to see the end result of all the classes. But before we dive into that, I, I would love to hear um, you guys' stories, like share with our audience how you got in the entertainment industry, why you chose this crazy career. Um, either of you like to go first? Why don't you, go, you go first, Erica. Yeah, yeah you, see, you know, I was going to say the same thing. You go first, Richard. Um, uh, let's see. All right, so you guys just have to cut me off because I'll just talk. You know. um, the... Um, I, um, where do I start? <laughs> I directed my first play when I was seven. It was called A Charlie Brown Christmas, and I translated the um, animated uh, show to what I thought was appropriate for theater. And then I also um, wanted to get the best Charlie Brown, and so I auditioned people, and no one was satisfactory to my seven-year-old brain, and so I played Charlie Brown. <laughs> That tells a lot about me right now. Um, I'm wondering, though, all of a sudden, I always hide myself view because I can't stand watching myself. And it's like, I'm only looking at myself. So <laughs> more of you. Um, but uh, I just wondered if there was a way I can hide myself view. I'm sure we could have asked this way before. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> okay. All right. Cool. There we go. So I'm just going to ignore myself. This is what I teach now. So it's great. Um, have, a, have, a, have, a, have a post-it note that you can put like right over your right Whitney's right underneath the camera. I'm looking right at you. Thanks. It's just like <laughs> changing to only me on the screen and not. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, needless to say, uh, then I got, I was, I was an athlete and um, very into swimming and sports. And then I got injured and, uh, and I found drama again. And when I went to um, DePaul University's theater school, which was formerly Goodman School of Drama, I found casting um, kind of by accident. I'm a very hands-on learner. I am not, uh, I don't like, you know, learning about it without also doing it. I love learning a lot of things, but I'm a doer and that's how I absorb information. And so when I was um, uh, in my last years at DePaul, I interned with a casting director named Jane Alderman. And one of the first films I worked on um, was Backdraft. And Ron Howard was kind enough to literally, uh, you know, and show me how to make a movie. So <laughs> I got very lucky and Jane was unbelievably supportive. And then um, I moved to Los Angeles and I lived there for a decade. Um, and I had other amazing mentors, um, Gretchen Rennell and David Rubin to be, uh, to call out the two big, big ones. And David's now, you know, the president of the Academy. So uh, that's no small feat. And um, I learned so many amazing things about casting. Um, but I always was giving script notes. I was always teaching. My parents are both professors. Um, and so or my mother's a professor. My dad was for a minute and a half. And now he's an architect. Uh, and uh, uh, I really have always loved the concepts of connection and knowing yourself and how to affect others and how to affect change and how we as people are all connected. I'm obsessed with aspen trees and how their root system is all connected. And I just feel like that's the film business and the acting business and um, so much of what we do because arts are my passion and filmmaking in particular is a collaborative passion. And it's really interesting because even in this time of COVID, when we're all online so much, I still feel those roots connected. And every time we teach a class, every time I, you know, give script notes or I'm talking to one of my showrunners in terms of wearing a casting hat, I, those those are so right there as much as they were in person. And I think that's the power of what we do is it doesn't even matter if we're literally in the same room together because that's how powerful it is. So that's really not your question, but there you go. There's my answer. No, that was great. That was great. And I love that you mentioned about Aspen trees. I actually got into this really intense conversation with my husband yesterday and he said kind of the exact same thing because we were just talking about everything that was going on and the interconnectedness of, of really the universe as a whole. And like that everything it's, it's none of it's in a vacuum, like whether it's ecology or social stuff, it, we're all interconnected. And he, he referenced the Aspen trees. So when you said that, I was just like, a little bit clipped. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's real. I never knew that stuff about you, Erica. That's really cool to hear. This is, <laughs> <laughs> an awesome video for me to be doing and hearing all this. Um, wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know you were so emotional in the mornings, Whitney. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was beautiful. They were so are well articulated and stated. It got me. It got me. Um, back to reporter mode. Okay. Uh, 
So Erica, at what point yeah. did you move from LA to Charlottesville? And are you still in Charlottesville? I am. I have a house in Charlottesville and I also have an, a home in Atlanta because a number of years ago, the company um, needed that because we were, I was going back and forth so, so much. Um, the I moved, I think my child had been born in LA, total, like in variety. It was like mom, pro, dad, non-pro. <laughs> I always, my, my husband always laughs that he's like, oh, I'm a non-pro. I don't count. <laughs> I was like, no, you're a pro, but in a different industry. <laughs> but um, the um, we moved in 2004. Um, but I went back and did a couple films and, um, you know, navigated that. I, I mean, I have stories of being a mother, you know, shipping milk via dry ice on Fed, at FedEx every single day, like, because my kid was with my parents. I, I mean, we, I really uh, did the working mother thing big time for a year. And then, um, and then I just thought, let, let me make the move. And so it, I did not expect that I would work from the East Coast. Charlottesville, Virginia is not I'm sorry, Virginia. I love Virginia. I love Richmond because that is a hotbed of filmmaking. But Charlottesville is not a hotbed of filmmaking. It's the most amazing, gorgeous place to live with happy, joyful, beautiful people. And I met people like Richard Warner when I first arrived, which was amazing. But um, uh, to be able to have grown a company, we're in our 10th year now, um, in this industry based the home headquarters really is in Charlottesville. Um, I'm still surprised about it. And other people come up to me, they're like, how did you do that? I'm like, I don't know. I think it was just this beautiful accident of those Aspen roots, right? It doesn't matter really where you are physically. If you've got those, um, you know, connections or that desire to listen and be connected, I think it's possible. Now to Richard, I, I know it's a hard act to follow, but <laughs> so how did you get involved in in the industry and what made you choose acting and then and then teaching as an extension? I want to actually first uh, respond to act to follow. We team teach and this is one of the artists that's right here in this little box beside me. We never followed each other. We were a team from the get go and uh, like I think you two are. And that, uh, that has been an exceptional experience for me because I don't mind following, an actor can do that, but this is a, a person that is, uh, has been sharing with me a very long time. So how did I get into it? Well, let me start this way. Uh, I think there are two tribes of actors, uh, and people can argue with me on that, but the two big tribes of actors for me are those people, those wonderful artists that knew from the get-go, maybe even when they were two years old, they wanted to be an actor. There's some, there's some, uh, and I wouldn't mind uh, the same thing. Would you put the four down? I love the four. <laughs> I love the four too. Uh, you know, uh, and so, um, so there's those people, and, and my wife is one of those. I think she knew very early on that she either wanted to be a nun or an, an actor. That's <laughs> now for me, I was a convert, and I, I, I arrived late. And so I'm, I have a different, uh, if you will, a different calling, because I do think there's a calling for an actor, an actor. And I think any artist, there's just sort of something and different artists talk about that. I'm called to do this. And we can get into that a little later. But I also think that of both tribes, two things are uh, true about an actor. One, we have, and I call it this, the audacity, the audacity 
to think that we have stories to tell. And somehow deep inside, we think there might be a story or two to tell. And then the other thing is this. We love the community. We love the idea of uh, collaborating. We enjoy being around the egos. We know how to uh, embrace uh, maybe a not-so-nice ego. There's an adjustability to it. So those are the two things that I've noticed in my career as a trainer about actors. So now I also have an actor exercise. You have actors out there. I think it's a good exercise. And I got this from my wonderful mentor, Michael Howard. He said, is there an exact moment that where you knew you were, you were an actor? Was there an exact moment where it all began, but also an exact moment that can be different, where you said to yourself, usually quietly, I'm an actor. Mm-hmm. I'm an actor. And they can come at different times. I'm going to tell you a little story about how I started an actor. You know, I, as an undergraduate, I was a, uh, I was a biology major. I wanted to become a doctor. My dad had died when I was 16, and I had the audacity to think that I could cure cancer. So I wanted to be, that's what I wanted to be. But I was in, I remember a Friday night, and I had, uh, I was, it was in a, a really, really strenuous biochemistry lab. And I was at a Catholic school, and so I knew that dinner was going to be what we called mystery meat, some kind of hockey puck-like fish dish. And I said, I'm not going to eat. I'm just not going to eat. So I, would, I was walking back to my dorm, and I swear to God, this is the truth, is I always took the route that was left around St. Joseph Hall. Well, this very day, I took, I used to tell people, the right path. I took the right path around St. Joseph Hall, and I walked past a placard that said, auditions tonight for mice and men. And I walked by it, and I just turned briefly to look back at the placard, and a wonderful person popped out of a basement door. He says, he was lower than me, and he goes, are you here for the auditions? And I went, uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Grabbed my shoulder, pulled me in. His name's Bob Butler, a dear friend to this day. Put a script in my hand and pushed me out on the stage, literally. So here I am in this stereotypic blackened hall on the stage, my knees knocking, and a voice comes from uh, the uh, kind of a gruff voice from, from the, the, the seats. Well, begin. And I, 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 he said, just read what's in front of you. So I read it, and then make a long story short, he called me that night and said, you are cast as Curly in Mice and Men, who's the villain. And that's the beginning of my career. Although the very beginning of my career, I played, I'm very proud of this, the second camel in the nativity scene. <laughs> I have one of those stories, too. I got to be the herald of the Lord whenever I was kindergarten. And I really, really wanted St. Joseph. I really wanted to be joking. That's and awesome. I, I mean, cast his first camel. You hear that so often, like people who it's just by a, a fluke of fate that you find your place. Um, I guess my question for you, Richard, is like, did you feel it? Like as soon as you stepped on stage, you're like, "Yep, this is what it, it, I didn't know I was missing it." But all of a sudden, like. That's, that's a great question, Whitney, because, you know, I'll tell you a story. Stanislavski did that. I don't know if you know this. Stanislavski had a very rich father. He was a gold merchant. They lived in a mansion, and uh, his father built him a stage in uh, their house. Stanislavski had the stage there, and he was, uh, he was uh, he's one of those kids, and this is one of those, in the other tribe, who played old men when he was in 12. 
you, you know, you, you probably have a character guy in your life that has done that all his life. And uh, he said he knew he was an actor when he could feel the laughter hit him. Hmm. He knew he was an actor when the laughter of the audience hit him and he felt the vibration of that audience laughter. That's when he knew that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So I, it is a visceral response, that calling, in many ways. Actors describe it in different ways, but a lot of them say it's very palpable. You know, it really is something that has an energy to it. And if an actor, actor always have to be self-aware. If they can dig down deep and say, what was that pulse? What well, Erica has named it very nicely. She calls it, we got to keep that pilot light going. That might be your pilot light, the thing that got you going in this crazy business. And we were in the business, Eric and I continue to be in the business, where we're trying to keep that pilot light going for an actor. To be honest, trying to do that. Uh, finding ways uh, to do that in, in a daily way, especially now. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it doesn't have to be in a job or in an audition. It can be every day as a daily practice uh, to keep that going. Because artists are artists 24-7, right? Absolutely. Right. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely the job that you don't leave at the office, you know. <laughs> so I guess my question to uh, both of you, because you started when you were young and you started when you found this. Did that pilot light ignite in that moment or was it at a later time? Like, did it ignite for you at Charlie Brown? Did it ignite for you when you had that guy, you know, in the dark saying, now begin? Or was it a little later in that? I love this question, Whitney, because we talk about the pilot light, but I personally, and I don't know, Richard, if you feel the same way at all, but I feel like it was, my pilot light was always burning. I just had to be able to discover where it was and, and find that light that was burning. So it wasn't that it, and not that you're saying this, but it, it didn't turn on. It was me finding the room that it was burning in. And then I'm like, oh, this is my room. The, Got it. This is what it is. And I think that that... Um, I think that, you know, I was maybe close to the room during the Charlie Brown business, but I think after I, you know, was injured with my swimming injury and then I did a play, not having any idea what I was doing. I didn't even know you should read the whole play. I thought all I needed was the line before mine and to memorize my line. That's it. That was my entire debut on the stage in high school. And everyone laughed. Richard, talk about laughter. Everyone bowled over with laughter. And I was mortified because I thought they were laughing at me. And then later, someone had to explain to me that actually the character is embarrassed in that moment. So that's what was so great is it was completely authentic and it was totally <laughs> accidental on my part. <laughs> <laughs> But maybe that's why they cast me, right? Maybe that's why I like casting. I knew that they just hit the nail on the head with me. It was a basketball player. You know, I'm six foot one. It was very easy for me to be uh, on stage towering over people, being self-conscious. Essentially, that was the role. <laughs> so, <laughs> there you are. <laughs> there I am. That's a great question. That's a great question. And I bet you two could answer it too, you, you and David, about that pilot light, when it happened. And I think agree with my study of actors suggests that it's always there. Uh, are, are we born to be artists? I, I don't know. That's a long and different, that's a very heavy question. But, uh, you know, I was also uh, uh, trying to discover. So I had a good friend said, have you found your art form yet? You know, I was a musician and I played sports. You know, there's a whole bunch of different things until I found my way to this. And, and, it, and it was interesting because I think, again, the vast majority of us might say, and you heard Erica, that it was a teacher or two, a mentor or two, 
they really, if anyway, sort of gave you permission mm-hmm. that, okay, there's a door over there. The good teachers don't open the door for you. They, they, they sort of say to you, you know, there might be a door over there you might want to investigate. <clears throat> so you have to take the walk to the door, grab the handle and open it up and go. But that nudge in that direction is significant. And I've had two or three uh, people that have done that for me and uh, and are an amazing part of my life because they were the ones that, that sort of said, okay, ignite the pilot light, here it is. And uh, and then the good teachers have said, and it's your responsibility to keep that thing going. I ain't gonna supply the gas. You know, you have to you have to do that. And uh, and that's that's been my story. Uh, I, my wonderful teacher. I, I want to mention uh, Lynn Slavin, undergraduate, and again Michael Howard were the two that really said, "You want to be an actor? Well, here's the thrills and spills of it. And uh, and here might be a path to do it. And uh, that has been what I've been testing ever since. I ask actors, when do you know you're an actor? How long? And you've heard this. And Meister actually said, "How long does it take to become a good actor? <laughs> How long?" And this is this is a really interesting question. I bet you every one of your listener viewers. I love how goal oriented that question. Hey, yeah, there's no kid. Yeah. I agree, David. <laughs> oh, I figure about five years from now I'll be an actor. Um, but how long to be a master actor? Well, uh, the only definition I get is when you, you, you know, there's no year to it when you can successfully repeat something. And for me, it's not a journey. I don't call repeat for an actor. It's journeying through again. Because that means that your gift that is natural, instinctive, is now coupled with craft skill. Mm. And that you can do something even deeper on the 17th take than on the first take suggests that you might be an actor. You know? (laughs) People can do it spontaneously. Yeah. But what you want, if you're a director, is an actor in front of you who is constantly, curiously creating. Or a yeah. partner. Once again, this one here is over here. Erica, I'm pointing over here because she's over here now. <laughs> <laughs> That's on my screen. It worked. It was the same. Yeah. I first went yeah. this way. Oh, there you are. This is really <laughs> how I should be pointing. But here, I'm pointing this way. Okay. <laughs> So before we get too much further into my questions and David's questions, we have quite a few questions from our audience. So I think we should uh, open that up to them for a moment. Yeah. Uh, Denise Riddle, who's a, a actor here in San Diego, a good friend of ours. Uh, she's posted a couple of questions. Which one to start with? Uh, Hi, Denise. <laughs> let's start with this one. This is an interesting question. She asks, uh, I do very well on in-person auditions, but I'm concerned how to get my confidence and personality across in self-tapes. I have a great in-person booking rate. Do you recommend doing a personality slate to attach to the self-tape to get the personality across? Oh, I have so many thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) The thing is, um, in the room, um, you're able, Denise, to get off of the other. You can read the room. I'm guessing you're very empathic and you can probably really feel what's going on. And the skill of observation of like looking at Whitney's face right now to see if what I'm saying lands there and looking at David's face right now and he's nodding a little bit and looking at Richard's face right now. And that that skill of observation is almost a translation from that 
feeling in the room to to making it more visual and more audio oriented on screen. And the audio, I'm I am one-sided hearing. And so it's a really interesting thing that I have found when I first went suddenly deaf in my ear. Um, I was learning sign language because my brain was not able to differentiate between foreground and background noise. And I feel like on camera today, like with podcasts or Zoom calls or StreamYard calls, just like this, we're all having to use our bodies just a little Mm -hmm. bit more to express because in the room, we can feel things. We can feel people's thoughts, but on camera, we have to be able to translate in just a slightly different technical way. And I think working on that skill would benefit you greatly with with self-tapes, getting really comfortable with being able to move on screen, getting really comfortable with letting your vulnerability truly be open. So if you're doing a self-tape, so I'm crossing my arms, right? But if I put them down... You can probably tell, just look at me. You have no idea if my arms are crossed or not, but now they're uncrossed. And do you see that that even makes a difference because it's letting people see you. And that's the idea of a self-tape is letting the casting director or producer or director find the character in you. Mm-hmm. So doing a personality um, uh, clip is not really what needs to happen at the base level, in my opinion, that's still showing people that, oh, you have this personality. You're still showing someone that you can act this way. That's why people play emotion so much and not the action. You don't have to, as an actor, ever show that you can act. You just have to be and let people find that character in you, which takes craft, years of practice. It sounds really glib and easy to say in that one line. And you hear so many times, just be you, be yourself, be natural. We don't want to see you act, you know, all of that. But that's what craft practice is. You can have crazy amounts of talent as a callback to what Richard just said, but to utilize that talent into a career, you have to have a craft practice or a methodology of some sort that works for you. I'll just add briefly that uh, our classes, and this starts with the total prep class and moves into the pure prep, are to do this. And let's use this definition of acting. This is one of the best, and that's Meisner's. Living truthfully in imaginary circumstances. And our challenge of actors now in self-taping is the back end of that, imaginary circumstances. I This is the room I self-tape in. How can I turn this into an imaginative situation so it's rich and alive and I'm present in it in, and my personality is present in the character in this imaginary situation? I don't have another actor. And so it's a really interesting challenge to do this. Even if I have a reader here reading, I have to create those conditions so that I can believe in them. And that you carry on right onto the set. I might be looking at a guy that's smoking cigar, a grip, and I have to be, you know, present and alive in my mind's eye. Or standing um, on a green screen. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. All that is our, our actor jobs. And so for me, I agree totally with Erica that just it's practice. And also this is a methodology, your approach. I would take a good look and see if you are just trying to project your personality in a character, may I gently recommend that what you need to do is maybe a deeper, deeper script analysis so that you can actually embed yourself in a better way, in a more believable way, so that you're sort of, frankly, not thinking about yourself, but you're taking care of the character. Yeah, Whitney and I had that conversation uh, just a month ago while she was uh, practicing <coughs> self-tapes. 
consequently, that was right around the time I took their class. That's yeah. when the conversation came up. Um, I think this is actually a fine time because this question led us into that. Uh, let's talk about how did you guys meet? How did you guys decide that you wanted to teach together? And we'll start with those two. And then I have a third one, but let's start with those two. <laughs> Um, when I first arrived to Charlottesville, I had a um, former, I went, as I said, I went to um, DePaul University's theater school and there was a master's student named Charlie Hutchinson and I was an undergrad and he was master's, but we were all together in class. And um, he found, he was in California and he was like, Erica, you're moving to Charlottesville. There's one person, one person on the planet you have to meet right away. And his name is Richard Warner. He was my undergrad acting teacher, professor, and uh and that's what, and so I did, I think I reached out to Richard uh, and I think we just started talking. I went to your office, you shared an office with, um, oh, who was, who was uh, someone who was, was it, was he a clown? What was the His name is LeVon Ho and he's a, he's a circus historian. Yeah. So I, <laughs> the people that uh, we shared an office and I was in the back end of the circus. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, oh, this is my people walking in just with circus. Great. Yeah, I always love to meet each other. And, um, and yeah, and then Richard, I think you asked me to guest in a class um, shortly thereafter. And yeah, uh, yeah take it and from that, That's when it began. So what happened in the class is that uh, she, uh, we, I brought her in for a week or two to do master class. And she would be sitting in the chair and I'd be running the camera behind her to, to tape it and all that. Uh, and then one day she turned around and this literally happened. She said, so what do you think, Richard? And so we, I, we started a dialogue. And we did that uh, through a couple of master classes. Then we walked out of that classroom. We looked at each other and both spontaneously said, this is sort of working. This sort of. So uh, uh, team teaching is a really interesting, rugged sport. And and there, sometimes it doesn't work uh, if egos clash and all that. But we sort of organically, if you want to use that word, uh, knew that this was going to work. But where it really, I think, started to happen is when we really started to, to find the like mind. And it was this one of our colleagues. Um, we, we would walk down uh, the mall in Charlottesville and have a cup of tea and just chat. And one day, one of our colleagues came and sat beside us, and we were sipping tea and just dialoguing. And uh, she said, "We I think people need to hear this. I think people need to hear what you guys are sharing. And she turned that into video blogs. And the video blogs, and we can tell you about those and what, what's going to happen with them, uh, started to turn into this idea of, and I think our baseline idea is this, one of them, is how can we help an actor or another artist in the industry stay artistically healthy in between the gigs? What's it like to stay artistically healthy in between the gigs? That's something we talk about a lot on our podcast. And, mm-hmm. and we just started to devise uh, and, and uh, use our expertise. And I think it's a rare beast, and maybe uh, people out there can tell us this, where you get an opportunity in a classroom to have a person that has seen thousands and thousands of actors as a casting director and understands actors from when they're in the most adrenalized rush situation and has done her whole life to help them to a better performance and, and match, match that with a guy who spent his life trying to figure out this idea of what action is for an actor. And you combine those two in the class, it's not a bad, not a bad combo. Yeah. I think what's really lovely, I mean, you always hear this, that like when you go for an audition, like they're really rooting for you. They want you to be the person that they choose. And 
you guys are like the living example. It's like, no, no, they really want you to be the person they choose. Like you're both giving everybody the tools to be that person, to go in and give the strongest audition and make it, make a moment, make a, uh, a collaboration. So that's, it's really awesome. Um, Cause everybody, everybody hears that, but the, you're like, you're wanting it. Yeah. Making it yours. I think that's the, I think that's the thing is, you know, how, how does one stand out if we're talking about an audition scenario, not a set after you've gotten the role, but truly how, because everyone's like, Oh, I'll make a bold choice. I want to make, I want to be a little different than everyone else. But the only way to truly be different is to be uniquely yourself. That's the way and your own instincts and interpretation of a script all based in script analysis and knowing your tools and your body and your emotional responses and using your senses and getting very specific, all the stuff that we always talk about. That is to support your truest self embodying that character. That's it. That's mm-hmm. it. And that's what that's what is makes it possible for those writers, directors, casting directors, producers to find that character within you because it's just, it's an offering. I'm going to prove this. It's just an offering. An actor's making an offering. A casting director's making an offering. Everyone's just there to support and discover one another. And once that mindset, I mean, it's a true mindset, shifts all of a sudden it's a different ball game and it's fun and it has to be fun. Why did get into this really tough business if we weren't passionate and we also need to play. That's a huge part of it. When we're playing and free, it's like watching, you know, a famous musician or, or, or someone who's just, it doesn't even have to be famous person, just someone who's totally into their art. That's magnetic. And the camera sees it and other humans see it. So how do we get past that hump of, Oh, what do they want into playing? And I feel like that's our, passion and our specialty, frankly. It's like getting over that hump, changing yeah. that. Yeah, I talk with actors all the time about uh, there's no tricks to be had. You have to figure out how to make it personal. And that, that for me, is always the key. Oh, you gotta, no matter what angle you have to take to find it and make it personal to you, if it's not personal to you so that you're not coming from a place of truth, it's never going to work. So... Nicely put, David. That's that's the whole ball of wax. You personalize everything. Yeah. It simply becomes words other than that. Really, uh, that's it. Now, that's no mean t- uh, feat. No. <laughs> that's a lifetime of work. <laughs> it's a lifetime of work to intellectualize that concept and then figure out how to get it out of your way that's so right. you can do it. <laughs> yeah, uh, Many, many teachers, and, and it's a great way of looking at it, say, okay, you do all your preparation, then you let it go. Well, Eric and I were sort of uncomfortable with that in the sense of uh, what are you letting go of? What Letting go of what? So we call it the, the leap. Once you prepare, you have to take a leap. Right. You have, and that, is, that takes an act of courage. So we say, what is an actor's courage? What is an actor's, and this is true about any artist, and, and, and particularly in this age, what is true artistic vulnerability in an actor and a director? And that is the courage to be heard and seen. Courage to be heard and seen, right? And in this age, particularly now, we need to have the, the guts to be seen and to be heard. And that goes right back to the question that was yeah. just so eloquently asked, you know, because that's, that's it's a different 
it's a slightly different skill set to be able to be heard and to be seen on self tapes. But the thing is, is is to encourage everyone that's closer to being on camera on set. You know, right. I wish to see a different different ball of wax than on set. Totally, like there, it's just a crazy you know genre of all its own. However, getting really really playful with seeing what works, what doesn't work. This like that's the idea, not in the mindset of I have to do it right. So uh, I'll give you an example of uh, courage. Uh, this is one that most people won't argue with me. I think Sir Anthony Hopkins did a pretty good job with Silence of the Lambs. Right. Yeah, I think that was not a bad piece of work. <laughs> um, and he took the risk of using himself. Yeah. He was a gentle, courteous Englishman. And it scared the heck out of him. You know, he, he plumbed the depth of his own ideas about that vicious character and came up with that master performance. Yeah. So it's, it's an example, and you can use other examples. So, again, I'll ask those actors out there to reach deep inside and say, was there a moment or two in your career where you truly were vulnerable, where you truly were personal, where you truly let it all hang out? And then this, didn't it feel great? <laughs> better than any drug maybe not as good as sex but pretty good <laughs> oh oh i uh i tell people the reason i like directing is that i like watching actors work through the process and i love that eureka moment on set <clears throat> when you can tell they've finally gotten past all the barriers yeah and what they're presenting you is an authentic self as opposed to portraying something. And when that moment happens on set, it's magical. Because even the, even the techs, you look over and they're lost in the scene and not paying attention necessarily to what they should be doing. And you know you've, you've hit that, that spot. And I just love it when you get to that point. Yeah, it's not, it's the sweet spot, really. It's the, you know, you can you talk about tennis or golf or baseball or uh, dancing. You can talk about any, any, but there's a sweet spot, you know. Um, oh, who gave the talk about genius? Was that Elizabeth Gilbert who talked about genius on a TED Talk? I think so. Yeah, and it's just, I think that those are the moments you're talking about. But David, it's interesting that you say that because a lot of times, um, because two we have a redirect class and a self-tape R&R class, and I usually direct actors in it. Redirect, I spend 40 minutes per actor, so it's quite a, a deep dive in working on material. And the um, I always talk about that, that <coughs> excuse me, sweet spot, but, um, oh, shoot, what was my thought? This is what happens. Oh, about redirect and your sweet spot and what you see with actors maybe in the redirect. In that fun thing to feeling them let go. I'll get it back in a minute. But the other thing I was going to say, it's all right. <laughs> I put that. See, just like an actor, their lines will come back, right? But the other thing is, Richard, in order, we always talk about in order to be able to take the leap, that craft practice, you're building. You're building something so you can actually take the leap off. Because if you don't build anything, what are you leaping from? Are you just skipping a hopscotch? You know, what, 
foot or whatnot. Or, or someone in class the other day, which Richard, I don't even think I told you, they were like, I love that idea of building a mountain and then taking the leap off and you're free falling out of the plane in the most exhilarating, beautiful way, right? But journeying through the material. But they were like, to me, it's a roller coaster. <laughs> First incline of the roller coaster, that's all the crap work and the script analysis and the embodied discovery and the backstory and you know all the all the methodology is that. And then all of a sudden you're going down and you know the roller coaster ride has certain turns, but they always feel just a little different. And you just keep journeying through it. And every time you take a roller coaster ride, it's still slightly different, even though you know what it is. And I just thought that was brilliant. I wish I could credit <laughs> it. I, I don't remember who it was, but it was so smart. I wonder what you think about that, Richard. <laughs> I love that idea. Uh, it's really good because I think if you just take the journey viscerally of a roller coaster, you know, the tick, 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 you're going up. That's all the preparation. Then you, you get on the top there, and you know that feeling just before you take the dive. That's where you want an actor to begin the scene, right? Right there, not, not you know, not joining what your body's going to do or anything like that. I love actors that will take that roller coaster ride, but I also love actors. I say we call it falling in love, and I love and I love the actors who actually understand the idea of falling. That falling means I'm just going to give myself up to the other. So I use that over roller coaster because yeah. falling in love has a roller coaster ride to it. Yeah. But falling in love means I'm going to make myself available to somebody else. I'm not going to take this ride by myself and get off on it. I am going to fall in love knowing that the other person is going to catch me when I fall. And I love that. Is that what you that. fall into the scene? It gets magnificent when an actor will fall in Shakespeare, mm-hmm. when you can take good or a complicated text, you know, complicated screens that will take that. And we love actors who will do that. They will take that fall for us. And I mean that. The fall, who are they falling for? Well, the person that's in front of them, their, their director, their point of view, their character, falling in love with their character time and time again. So an actor, I, I, you know, you work with an actor, and I just had the pleasure of working with Ethan Hawke, watching him, I wouldn't say we're watching that master actor. He loved the roller coaster ride, but he knew what falling in love. He, every time he, they said action, he was falling in love with his character. Hmm. That's what he was doing. In my That's estimation. great. That's great. Yeah. Um, um, what my thought was, hello, see <laughs> David, what I love what you said um, about that actor and not being able to access the script in your mind, I use the expression a lot when I'm working in these longer classes of I want to see you off the page. And when I say mm-hmm. off the page, I don't mean put the page down and have it memorized. I mean, when you're saying lines, I want to have zero idea that they've ever been written on a page. Right. So, and, and because I've read the script or because I'm reading opposite and I'm looking at the script, it's so impressive when someone lets go enough or leaps enough that those pages seem un. It, it seems impossible that those words were actually written down in a way on the page because they're so flippant, authentic, and, and organic. And that's what Ethan, speaking of that, because Richard's talking about Good Lord Bird, um, which I cast, and that is like that's what Ethan did every flipping table read every like you're like you're like oh is he reading the script oh my gosh he's reading the script and you had no idea because it was so authentic coming out of his voice wow that's awesome to be able to do that like 
just in a table read even. Yeah. Um, so I, I have a question going back. So you guys have been talking a lot about the process that you use. Um, one, so from the time that you guys started doing the blogs to now, what was that time period? And what was the process of figuring out? Because obviously you guys both have a lot of various pedagogical backgrounds. How did you decide what was going to go into your training? Because, you know, having taken the class, there's a lot of Stanislavski, um, but it's it's different than like, say, doing straight Stanislavski from grad school or something like that. So what was the time frame and what was the process of figuring out how you were going to teach this? You want me to go or you want to go, Richard? Great when you go. Okay. I thought you want me to. No, no, I'll go first. Then you could, you'd fill in the blanks. Um, that's what we do well. So the, um, I, I don't know, uh, how many years ago it was, but I moved in to Charlottesville in 2000, uh, yeah, 2004 and now it's 2020. So sometime probably within the last six to 12 years is when we started having those conversations. And I have, I truly don't know. So Richard, you can fill in that blank if you, if you know it. Um, and um, we really were hunting for and always talking about craft. And I was constantly intrigued with the, the, the nuanced differences between craft practice in theater training and craft practice in film and television training. And because I went to, you know, DePaul, which was Goodman School of Drama, like I had four years of Stanislavski and it was very theater training heavy. And that I understood it. And then Richard obviously is a historian and a, a seasoned pro at knowing every ounce of Stanislavski and all of its derivatives. And so I was always asking Richard and we, I think we just started really dialoguing about, ooh, this could really help a film and television actor. This could really help someone auditioning for this, or this could help a co-star, or this could help a guest star role. Like we started getting very specific. And then with Richard's vast knowledge of everything, I think you originally brought like an idea of certain things, like boiled it down to things. And then I think we decided, Ooh, which, which are those things that are the most poignant, the most fruitful that um, an actor could use. And then over the years, as we're teaching it, we have changed the sequence. Number eight became number 10, number four. Number eight, and, and we just through teaching it through feedback, through our own observation have refined it to such a very simple 10 steps now that we feel is the most poignant. Richard, any of that true or am I making yeah, that up? Absolutely true. So I, I would dare say that it was probably around 2007, 2008 that we began our association together and we refined this in our classes. So we started out with the idea that Erica talked about, which is, okay, what do you take from, if you have a lot of theater training, what do you take from that theater training and apply it to, to film? Um, and, and we all know this, so some might as well say it. It's not that film is smaller. The, the film is a distinctly different art form in many ways. It, it has at its core good acting. Acting is acting is acting in a lot of ways. But you have a lot of stuff you're dealing with in, the, in a different medium there that you have to be conscious, including the rehearsal time, a whole bunch of things we can go into. And you think about it for just a second. So what's the thing you're going to transfer over? I'm going to challenge the people out there uh, this way. And this is not a uh, judgment. It just is that uh, just like, hmm, 
have have you read Stanislavski out there? Have you read all three books? Have you done that? You know, a lot of actors haven't. And uh, I'll give you a tip. That was translated by Elizabeth Hapgood. God love her. She brought it to us uh, to translate it. But it's not a particularly good translation. And it's not what Stanislavski wanted. There's a fellow named Gene Benedetti. And he's written, uh, he got all of Stanislavski's notes. He is a, he was a preeminent scholar. And he's written uh, a masterwork of the Stanislavski system, combined all three books in the books that Stanislavski wanted. And it's called An Actor's Work. You might want to check it out. So I read this thing a number of times, and I will say this, too. We talk about Stanislavski as if it's a separate system from Adler, Meisner, uh, Hagen. They're all the same. They're all Stanislavski derivatives. What we're talking about here in core, whatever system is going to work, and I have a prejudice here, is that, and that prejudice is that find a system that works for you and then study it deeply. Go deep into one system. We have too many people who do smorgasbord acting, a little bit here, workshop there. That's fine and dandy, but learn one system thoroughly, significantly, and then you can extrapolate from there. Trust me on that. That's going to work because now you know in your body, in your soul, how those inner workings, why why the system has lasted over a century. And at the, the core of it is this idea of action, right? Objective, obstacles, and adjustments. That's the through line of action. That's how good writing is written. And so that's what we that's what we are there to provide dramatic tension, conflict. We need to be thwarted by objectives. So what Eric and I did was say, what's this? One of the distinctive difference in film and theater is that you have four weeks to rehearse in theater. You get to work with an actor. You get to solve it together. You don't do that in a film. So what's an efficient, economical, durable way to do this? And that's when we invented this 10 steps and we work to refine it. What Erica said is we switch them around so that if we, we feel that if you take our steps one after another, it's going to improve your work significantly. And there are steps that every actor needs to do to find this, which is to what David said, to personalize. There are steps to find you to the text in a personal specific way. And so what the wonderful thing that we did, I just, is that, uh, I, I, you know, we devise these things and we, and we, we teach and we go, hmm, what happens if we put this step up here? What does that do? And then we talk like crazy about all that. And then this one over here, I did it right. <laughs> uh, she started to invent exercises that uh, complemented my exercises and she started to refine my exercises. So we have not just intellectual ideas. David said it too. You know, someone said, okay, what's action? And it was up here, just and only up here, you're in trouble. We have to get this into their body. We have to, what we call embodiment. We have to know that action is not, is a point of view that has everything to do with your senses and your aliveness uh, there in the present moment. And so we're hoping that what we do in the first five, we have 10 steps. The first five is that we, in fact, ask an actor to take a thorough and deep script analysis, and then in six through 10, to take it on a journey and to embody it, to get on your feet and really work it. And so that's, I think, a refinement. And most of our classes are sort of designed around that in some way. Is that fair to say, Erica? Yeah, I think so. And we've always called it total preparation. Um, And you could, I mean, our class, I mean, our total preparation class is four and a half hours. 
Um, and it's essentially the curriculum of year one of graduate school, very much consol consolidated and potent, you know, whatnot. But we could take our total prep curriculum, and we have, and we could spread it over eight weeks, 12 weeks, 15 weeks, because you can always go deeper and you can always go better. But the beauty of it is we had to be realistic and say how can someone apply all 10 steps when they have 24 hours notice for an audition? Like that's the reality we're in, right? right. And yeah. that, Whitney, that's the class pure prep that you took, which is really mm -hmm. a 90-minute journey. And we actually just recorded the audio version. So you can get the audio version and do it anytime you want to and listen to us guide you through all 10 steps, you know, like a meditation, but it's a preparation. <laughs> and, um, and I was listening to it last night, checking everything because we're about to launch it. And I almost fell asleep, Richard. <laughs> So soothing doing the sensory exercises. <laughs> <laughs> the ASMR recording. <laughs> just send out. Yeah. Um, yeah. So from my experience taking that class, and I've uh, I've used your your ten step format for every self tape I've been doing over the past few weeks. Oh, cool! Oh my gosh! Can I tell you what? One of the biggest things, if I took nothing else away, doing the character work for one hour cuts down memorization by like. Yeah. 75%. Like yeah. I, it's amazing. It takes me half hour, maybe an hour to memorize two or three pages now. If I have done the character work. Yeah. And it's so weird. You, you <laughs> yeah. know, it's uh, uh, sorry, Richard, but uh, before this track goes away, uh, you said acting on camera is not smaller. Right? right. And what I've been telling people is it's the same process. It's just compressed. And what I love about theater is it gives you a lot of all that time in rehearsal, all that time working with, with your director and the other actors helps you kind of build the house. Right. Um, film doesn't give you the time to build a huge mansion, but you can build a tiny home and the basic structure is the same. Right. So you got to figure out how to build a tiny home for film so you can live within that space for the little bit of time that you have to be there. Um, and, and I think for me that, that analogy is kind of like, it's all the same building materials. It's just a different structure. I love it. Oh, that's good. Uh, you know, I, I like a couple of responses to things. You know, Erica said that it was like what we convinced is a, a, a year of graduate school. Remember she said to expand it. Well, these are the ideas that you might receive in, a, in the first semester of a graduate school with this in mind. You don't get good at this unless you practice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're not going to build a tiny house unless you know how to deal with the wood. And your first house might be just a bloody mess. <laughs> but eventually, if you... And, and that's why I like to use the house metaphor, because we yeah. all understand craftsmanship. Absolutely. And the fact right. that, you know, yeah. somebody has to learn and take the time to be, be able to construct something like that. Can I tell you a little story? I work with a master carpenter at my pickup job to keep my kid in diapers when I was a young actor in New York City. And he was a master carpenter. And I am pretty good with tools. And I was planing uh, a piece of wood. And he came over to me and said, what are you doing? <laughs> and I said, I'm, I'm planing the wood like you told me. And he said, you're destroying the wood. <laughs> he said, you're hacking at it. Let the tool do the work and let the wood let you know what you're supposed to plane. Mm. I thought, ooh, this is pretty heavy. Zen-like. <laughs> but you know what? He was right. I was pushing the tool 
rather than letting the weight of the plane sculpt the wood. And he said, you're not looking at the wood. What do you need to do next? You know, I'm just planing away. And it was, <laughs> it was an acting lesson. Yeah. Acting lesson. And I love the tiny house metaphor. Now, I'll give you another one. There's a, a wonderful book called Talent Code. And this journalist went around and, and there, he said, what is, what, what is it, these little pockets of place where there's incredible talent coming out? What, is, what are the factors that uh, allow this one place in Russia to have amazing women uh, tennis players? And I'll just use one. Uh, and I think uh, that follows your example of Tiny House. In some place in Brazil, there's a man who's produced an amazing amount of soccer players. And he doesn't have all the fancy equipment and all that. He has a tiny little shabby gym, and it's really small. So what he's done with his players is that rather than having a full field to do it, he's compressed the game. Mm -hmm. so the game's moving much quicker, and they have to make moves and be spontaneous and figure out things to solve. And so they became totally much more skillful than the other players because they can move more rapidly, more fluidly. They think quicker, and so they became the stars. Yeah, oppression or, or ideas like that can help. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to challenge the actor with the idea, trust your first impulse. What do you think presence is if it's not your first impulse? First impulse has to know this, which is I can build a tiny house now if I'm really good. If I practice crazy, if I practice a lot, then I can build that and it can be really and then I can move on and do it. So I love your analogy. It's yeah. impression is really what helps an actor in film and TV. Yeah. Richard, I think that example that you gave of, of this uh, tennis trainer is a perfect description of the class that you guys provided because having gone to grad school, it's like, yeah, yeah, it's kind of the same information, but that information was for two months of training, you know, for a theater production where you have the time to slowly, you know, dive through the character. But doing a self-tape, yeah, you may have 24 hours, you may have three hours, and how do you compress that? And you guys give that to everybody at a really just nicely presented package, like, here you go, follow these steps, and it will happen. <laughs> and like I said, I've been following these steps ever since I took the class. I'm like, oh, it's so much easier. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank you for saying so that. I'm a You're welcome. to-do lists as well. Like, it just organizes things, and it almost releases my own creativity when I'm like, oh, here, so I don't have to think of, oh, what's my next step? Oh, what's my next step? It's just like, it takes that part of my brain away so I can release that and so that's one of the other hopes that we have when people use that 10 step is it's like oh good it's a guide so now they can really uh delve into their imagination and I also will say this uh, is that I got a feeling and this is the first time I met David but I got a feeling I'd like to work with David as an actor and I'm just not saying that but some of the I things you said suggest to me that he does this. He allows an actor to build their tiny house on set. Mm -hmm. So, and 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 you have to respond to directors who are like that because they're the ones that are they're really really going to really push you and get good work out of you. And that director has to do his or her preparation too. That means yep. they have to build their their tiny house for you. They have to you know you've walked on what I call a quiet set. And this is a set's really organ. You know, sets are crazy and all that. But if in all the craziness, if there's still something about the director that he or she has command of this, which is we're doing a human story here, and all the tech is breaking loose, and the sun is going down. But what I'm really interested in is you building that tiny house right here in front of me. 
Yeah, see, let me see you do it. And then really getting out of your way a little bit, but also nudging saying, here's a hammer. Why don't you try that? You know, that kind of stuff. To use the metaphor. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, David is definitely one of those directors where it's, he doesn't, he doesn't push, but he gently directs you to, there's a door over there. <laughs> like you were saying earlier with the, with a good teacher. So I think, I think that's uh, a really quality thing about a director that there's a little bit of teacher in them too. Yeah. Yep. I think trust is everything, right? Because we're, we're asking actors to lay it bare, right? Getting to the idea that they're, they're being very personal and they're being very self-true in their performance. You're asking them to, to lay their emotional core bare for the world to see, for the, the people on set to see, and I feel like as a director, it's my job to give them a safe space to explore that, to find that without, without fear of judgment or ridicule in the process. They've got to find their way there. Um, if, I'm, if I'm a detraction from them being able to get to that spot, I'm not doing my job. So that, that's my philosophy as a director. Beautifully said. <laughs> I think that's beautiful. Um, now, I want to make sure that everybody knows, one, where to find your classes, and two, what classes you guys have to offer. So without giving any spoilers, can you give like just a little blurb overview of the class options that uh, Arvold Warner Studios offers? Yeah. <laughs> so um, right now, <clears throat> we are, um, well, you can find us on arvold.com. We have an official Arvold Warner Studio website in the works, so that will shift soon, but you can always link to it from arvold.com. But right now, arvold.com is where, where to find everything. Um, in the class curriculum, we have Total Prep, which is the four-and-a-half-hour class that's really we're able to dive into each of the steps with an effective amount of time for, for further understanding. And so that's really the base and almost – the first class we would recommend to everyone because that's the base and foundation of all of our other offerings. Then we have pure prep, which indeed are the 10 steps, but done in 90 minutes. We actually make it a two hours so we can have a Q&A afterwards online, but typically in person, it's a, it's a 90 minute class. Um, we have upcoming in July, Richard is going to be doing a masterclass, which is very exciting, um, yet to be announced. So you're the first to hear about it right now. Hey. Um, and um, and then we also have um, Total Prep Youth classes um, for those that are under 18. All of our other classes are college age and above. And um, I teach self-tape R&R, where uh, R&R is not rest and relaxation, but that is how you feel after the self-tape <laughs> Not worried anymore, but it's actually for uh, review and refine because we review self-tape um, that the actor provides and then um, I get you on your feet and we start refining it just to see if there's deeper script analysis or enhancing the environment or some real specific sensory um, work that needs to be done to see how we can refine that performance. Um, but we review technical issues as well. And, uh, and hopefully the out outcome is yes, you are a bit rested and more relaxed about yourself tapes. So hence the double entendre of the name. And then, um, and then we have a class called redirect, which is where I have only three participants, but we have a lot of observers. A lot of our classes observers are allowed and and or encouraged. I shouldn't say allowed, encouraged. We we open it up because a lot of directors and a lot of writers in particular are literally drawn to this 
curriculum because it helps with writing a character. And uh, one of my one of my dear friends is a writer and he came, he's an actor as well. And he came to class and he goes, hold on. He's like, this is, I can appreciate it as an actor. He goes, but this is, this is gold for a writer. You don't understand. I've taken, and he's taken master classes and, you know, all sorts of things on story, but all of this stuff. And he's like, it fits right in, it integrates, but he's like, it is gold after gold nugget after gold nugget. So, so we've opened a few of our classes to observers for that reason. And in redirect, I spend 40 minutes per actor, scene of their choice, monologue of their choice. And we just go down the rabbit hole with really, it's essentially one-on-one coaching, but publicly, you know, um, uh, and, uh, and the observers for any of the classes we offer observer slots for, we just get such positive feedback. Like I had no idea I would get as much out of the class as I did as an observer, you know, and some are like, I want to be a participant. And some are like, it's cool. Like I got so much out of this class already. So we play games, we keep it fun. You know, if it's not fun for me and Richard, why are we doing it? Right. I mean, as a little selfish, but like we want to serve actors, but the best way to share is if you're also passionate, like the yeah. worst thing would be if I'm like, Oh, I got to teach a class. And like, like what, who's, who am I doing any good for? If that's the attitude, you know? So <laughs> we have a rule and unless we're into it, we don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I tell people, uh, it's a, it's a, it's not necessarily a career. It's a series of gigs. So like you have to love it and you have to enjoy it. Otherwise, what the hell's the point? <laughs> you know? Yeah, and I think enjoying it when you're not in the gig, like keeping yourself, you know, artistically um fueled um so that you can, because otherwise I think that there, I mean, of course I get it. When I'm interviewing for a job, whether it's casting or if I'm thinking of producing or bring brought on as a producer or even directing, which I just started doing um in film and television, the the idea of um, uh, see <laughs> going up. Say Richard, Richard. What was I going to say? It'll come back. I promise. It'll come back. <laughs> this is me being authentic, right there. That's hey, what. Hey, I hey. Like it's somewhere in there. It would escape for a moment. It'll come back. Well, we have um, we have so, another question that uh, oh. has been sitting here for a little while. Um, it, it's about uh, <laughs> it's about uh, let's see here. Let me find it. It's no. up here. Okay. Can I do one little teeny thing though? Because yeah. you saw that go out of my brain. So the um, when actors forget lines, this is something we talk about a lot because a lot of times actors will cut themselves off right away. But mm-hmm. that moment that you can just trust, hmm, I wonder if it's going to come back. Usually if you're prepared and you're memorized and you've done your work, it does come back. And it usually comes from off of the other as opposed to in rocking your brain too. So like even like the last, the last example in a real life example, right? IRL, I just learned what that meant. Um, that <laughs> David, you know, you said something and all of a sudden, oh, it came back to me. But it was mm-hmm. from you that I received it. I wasn't sitting here going, oh, where, where is that thing? And ch- you know, chiseling my brain. Well, I think I think the voice of the other person or the action of the other person pulls you out of your brain, which allows you to get out of your own way and then it comes to you. Exactly. So forgetting lines sometimes is a beautiful moment of thought and in-character thinking. And if you're 
confident enough to sustain that silence, the line usually comes. So Mm -hmm. I always encourage actors to embrace the fact that they might have forgotten a line because trusting that it will come off the other and trusting that that moment is so alive within character thinking, that's probably the sweet spot that people are looking for. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay, here's... uh... This will be our last question from the audience. Uh, Denise says she has a ton of friends that have East Coast agents and managers along with West Coast agents and managers. And she's able to fly for callbacks in filming. How do you recommend seeking an agent in the Atlanta market? Oh, boy. I wish I were <laughs> to tell you. I mean, <clears throat> Richard, do you have anything or do you want me to go on this one? Well, I want I want to see, see how you feel about this, Erica. But I've been hearing recently that there's so many good actors in Atlanta that they're not spending a lot of time hiring people out of it unless they're moving to real, you know, principal roles. Um, that uh, that you, in many ways you have to have a, a Atlanta address in order to really have a career there. Mm-hmm. Atlanta, I say, it was really fascinating for, for us to travel down there. Um, over the last, I would say, eight years, I've never, I, this way I put it, I've never seen a major city advance into professionalism as quickly as Atlanta. Remember, uh, New York and L.A. have an age-old culture, where mm-hmm. the Atlanta culture is like the Wild West. And what has happened recently is that everything has gotten sophisticated very quickly. Um, and this includes uh, what agents are doing, includes training and all that. And the influx of actors coming in from L.A. and New York is exceptional in that town. The people have made a decision to move there. So it's tricky now it, and it changes constantly. And who knows when we reenter where it will be uh, as far as movement goes. So it's a hard question to ask, especially now uh, or to answer. And if you want to continue on that. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating. Um, I think one of the many factors um, about wanting an agent in certain localities is because the way that the most popular system works, which is breakdown services, is that agents can submit to breakdowns that are released in certain areas. And so if I am releasing a breakdown in the Southeast and Mid-Atlantic only, then unless an agency based in Los Angeles has a bricks and mortar office in my area, they cannot submit to me. So I literally, they don't even see my breakdowns, right? Mm -hmm. And I have to choose what area. And so those agents, um, if there's an actor that lives in Atlanta, but only has a Los Angeles agent, that does not have a partner in Atlanta and doesn't have an office in Atlanta, that actor in Atlanta is not physically able to be submitted via breakdown services by that Los Angeles agent if I've only released it in my area. So that's what I think is one of the probably many catalysts to the the question and the division of of drawing those lines around certain regions and areas. And I get it because if I sent out a breakdown that was nationwide, it would be thousands and thousands and thousands of submissions for, and it's just overwhelming possible to go through. Yeah. So, um, so I think it's important to be very cognizant that are you really represented in the area that you have a home or whatnot? But if you're talking about, and I'm reading into this question, if you're talking about being hired as a local hire and you have a place to stay in Atlanta, but you actually live in Los Angeles, you know, 
my rule of thumb is if you get a call, can you be there in three hours? Can you literally be to where they're saying in three hours, no questions asked, easy people. And a cross-country flight does not qualify the three-hour rule in my own book. Yeah. Um, um, so, you know, there's a whole lot to be said about local hires and it changes all the time, but that's my own kind of bar right now. So from my experience, you guys are spot on because my family still lives in Atlanta and Mm -hmm. I've talked to my former Atlanta agent about this exact thing. And she said pretty much verbatim what you said, Erica. She's like, it's great. I wish I could. But if we need you here fast, there's just no way. So um, I think that's kind of the consensus that I've experienced. Yep. Well, guys, it's been uh, a quite it's been over an hour <laughs> um <laughs> which, you, is, uh, which is fantastic thank you guys so much for taking the time and uh, and i hope that uh everybody who's listening goes in and checks out your website at rvold.com and uh you know i hope uh, we can have you guys back on again down the road uh as your teaching offerings increase and uh and there's more to talk about especially after things open back up and mm. we get a better fix on uh what this industry is looking like after uh, quarantine. Yeah. Erica, I would really like to have you back on to talk about uh, your directing because you, you just directed a movie and we haven't got to cover it. <laughs> That's okay. I would love that, Whitney. I, I flip and love talking on these things, you know. <laughs> I'm just, I miss so much being in, you know, a collaborative in-person setting, just batting things around. And this is very fulfilling to me right now. So thank you very, very much for, for inviting us. Well, thank you for joining. We really enjoyed it. This is a great conversation. <laughs> it was. And uh, to all of our live uh, audience thank you guys for joining us uh, this has been the intellectual podcast i'm with uh, richard warner erica arvold my co-host whitney wegman wood i'm dave dawson be sure to check out more of the podcasts at ixe.us and be sure to subscribe to us on youtube on facebook and any of the podcast platforms that you may listen to us on uh, until next time thank you all so much bye-bye everybody bye everyone bye Hello there, citizens. I am the terror that flaps in the night. I am the floaty that will not flush no matter how many times you try in the toilet bowl of crime. I am Darkwing Duck, telling you please talk hard and enjoy the mindgasm. <laughs> Whatever the heck that means. After all, you are watching Intellectual Podcast with your ears.